note before jumping into today's podcast, the Flip Learning Network is a non-profit and we are always looking for support from our community. There are many options to support us. Please ask us on social media or check out our page at fliplearning.org slash support FLN. We have a Patreon set up. We can accept donations via PayPal. We have an Amazon affiliate link and some other options through sponsorship links on the website. So this is another episode of Ask the Flip Learning Network. Today we have Jesse Stommel. Um, Jesse is the Executive Director of the Division of Teaching and Learning Technologies at University of Mary Washington and the co-founder of Digital Pedagogy Lab and Hybrid Pedagogy, which is an open access journal of learning, teaching and technology and has a PhD from the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, that's just straight off your bio page. So I thought I'd read that because it'd be easier. What What more can we, can we give? background to jesse that uh listeners uh, well, know i guess i mean most of the listeners probably know that i have a two and a half year old daughter named hazel and in the background he is calling her dog her dog is emily and she calls <laughs> emily ooey 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 nice. and she now likes to slap her leg because every once in a while we slap our leg to get her to mm-hmm. come and mm-hmm. so now running around the house saying ooey 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 and slapping her leg is awesome. like 90% of her day. That's wonderful. No, I, I miss those days. My my oldest is now 17 and the youngest is almost 12 and, and another in the middle there. So uh, I saw a colleague with a baby today in her pouch and I was I was remembering those days quite a few years ago of having having little ones. So what, um, what I thought we could talk about today is we could either go, um, first I'll mention that Jesse and Sean Michael Morris, who I just interviewed earlier, last week uh, for an episode, have their book has been out for, I guess, close to a year now, right? Uh, yeah, about, about eight months. Okay, Urgency of Teachers, Work of Critical Digital Pedagogy. Uh, it's available free online, as I mentioned on the, on the episode with Sean, and you can go and grab it via Amazon or other methods. I've got it on my Kindle where I read it there, but I also like going to the online version because I find it nicer to take notes and uh, take notes from there and post it into my my own work. So we could talk about that. Um, I've been doing a lot of, um, I don't know, making noise or shouting about ungrading lately because uh, I've gone through pendulum shifts of, of going straight out completely, no grading with no structure at all almost, and then deciding I needed to go back because my students were freaking out without knowing what they're supposed to be doing to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. And then last semester, um, there was an article in, um, it was a higher ed magazine about ungrading. Um, yep, did, yep, indeed. Yeah, and you were in there, and, and the night before she had to get her deadline done, she sent me a tweet, and so I got something in there as well. And then I decided to throw out all of my grading for that semester and, and toss things to the wind. So that's been on my mind. We could talk about open pedagogy, um, but I but I think I'll let me let me ask you, Jesse. When how long have you been doing on grading? When when did this start for you? And did you ever grade? Um, that's a good question. I have been um, I have not been grading uh, for my entire life. I guess <laughs> <laughs> the the whole of it. Um, I've been teaching for about, uh, so in 2001, I taught my first class as instructor of record. Okay. 
Um, and, but in 1999, I was a teaching assistant right. and one of my big jobs in that class was do most of the grading. Right. So when I started teaching, it was in 1999 as a distant with an absolutely amazing mentor of mine. And we were teaching introduction to film studies and, um, she gave me a lot of latitude. So I, so I was doing traditional grading. But what I essentially was doing as a teaching assistant was doing the grading, but also just talking to students about their work. And mm -hmm. so I had the ama most amazing entrance into teaching, a mentor who trusted me and let me run wild. She was really glad that I knew how to run an Excel spreadsheet track of everything. <laughs> um, and she thought that was amazing digital like uh, <laughs> wizardry. skills, wizardry of mine. Um, and she was wonderful. Um, but then the thing is, she gave me latitude to just work with the students the way that made the most sense for them. And we had a class of 120 students. So it was a wow. large lecture section at University of Colorado Bowl. And what I was doing was grading enormous stacks of paper. So right. here I am, Jesse, um, senior in college. They got an exemption to allow a senior to be a assistant. Right. And I was in my studio apartment in Boulder, Colorado, four, you know, 400 square feet, my tiny, my tiny little place. And I had a stack of 60 papers that I was grading right. and I was putting comments on them the first time. And then at the end of that reading of the paper, I had to decide a grade. Mm -hmm. um, and it meant that I then had to have conversations with the students about those grades. And it was a really interesting introduction, but in some ways what that also led me to realize that was that the, the meat of the work that I was doing with the students was the engagement. And what I found in those first conversations is that the grade was actually a barrier to the engagement. Mm -hmm. And so when I got my first course as instructor of record, I had a mentor, Martin Bickman at University of Colorado Boulder, the only college professor that I've had who didn't grade. And I loved the way that he approached it. And I just said, this is how I'm going to do it. And so my first semester teaching as instructor of record, I didn't put grades on student work. And I have since that day, never when I was the instructor of record, have I put grades on a single piece of student work. That's wonderful. But then, but then I'll say, well, then maybe it's better to have grading, Jesse. You've just never experienced the wonder of it. Uh -huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah that? the marvels of grading. But here's the interesting thing is that I say that I've never put a grade on a piece of student work, but it's actually not true at all because... Right. I started as a TA, as a grader. And then right. when I first started as instructor of record for the bulk of my teaching, I was not only teaching as instructor of record, but I was also being a teaching assistant. I continued to be a teaching assistant alongside being instructor right. of record. And I continued to follow whatever grading policy the instructor had for that course. And in this case, it was another one of my mentors, R.O. Inman, also an amazing teacher who had a really amazing approach to grading and gave me a lot of latitude. But it meant that I essentially was playing in the pond that she had created. And the pond that she had created was different than the pond I would create. And so it allowed me to see what grading looks like from all kinds of different perspectives, mostly progressive perspe perspectives, because I wasn't, I never teed for a, for a teacher who was like uh, holding the fire to the student's feet. Um, right. But still relatively traditional approaches to grading, uh, more traditional than mine. And I loved it. I actually, it's, so it's not like my experience is that grading is the end of the world. My experience right. is that I've seen what it can look like to run a class with no grade. And anything else to me feels 
potentially really wonderful if you have the right teacher who's framing grades in the right way, but it doesn't work as well as what I, at least it doesn't work as well for me teacher as what I've approached in my classes. So, right. That's, that's where I was going to go is there's a spectrum. There's a, we all have to find the right match. And I, I remember talking about this with Sean, that when we go and talk to other teachers about what we're doing in our classrooms, we need to make it clear that you can't just copy whatever Jesse's doing. You can't copy yeah. what Ken or Sean or Chris or, or Sarah's doing. You've got to find your own way and there's going to be your own culture that you create in your classroom. Um, and I think maybe, maybe sometimes the reaction will be, well, you're not teaching that filter course. That's the whatever yeah. discipline 101 that needs to filter out X percent of students that won't continue. Um, not that I actually believe that's something we should be doing, but yeah, I, guess, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of that kind of pushback. You're not teaching yeah. math one or. Yeah, I guess I would say that a all of that pushback, none of that sort of generalizing pushback makes any sense to me. There aren't right. disciplines where grading or ungrading makes sense. There aren't specific courses. There aren't specific grade levels. Right. It, that is not the variable that has made the difference. I have known all manner of STEM teachers, math teachers who have done ungrading. I have known K through 12 teachers. I have known higher ed teachers. I've known gateway course teachers. I've known upper level course teachers. I've known adjuncts. I've known tenure track. I've known tenured professors all doing ungrading. And I've also known people at all of those levels and with all of those kind of classes teaching successfully with more traditional approaches to grading. So I don't I, like I don't think any of those barriers or boundaries um, or variables hold essentially hold water as the as the thing that makes the difference as to whether this works or not. To me, right. what it is, is what kind of relationship do you want to create with your students? What is the best way for you in your discipline to create that relationship. And there's it, like the discipline isn't the variable. No. The level isn't the variable. The teacher isn't the variable. The student isn't the variable. All of those things are the variable. And exactly. so it's such a complex system that what works and what doesn't work can't be generalized. Right. And I, and I definitely agree with that. I'm teaching computing science almost always, although I stretch the boundaries a little bit. But I've get a lot of people saying, how are you doing open pedagogy or connected learning with blogs from your students when you're teaching computer science? Um, and I don't, I don't think it really matters so much or, or get into the flip learning and how do you do that in computer science or math or whatever. It's, I've, I've seen people talk about the way they do innovation in their classes, whether it's a, a uh, physical education teacher, there's a lot that we know that are doing this, or yep. to hard science or, or to writing. So I think that's, uh, yeah. and I got to go back and, and listen to what you just said, Jesse, because it really sounded like you were singing, I've been everywhere. Which know, <laughs> <laughs> just came out in my head, so I had to Google it. I have the, well, I have the weirdest. Back, we're thinking Johnny Cash. I honestly have the weirdest um, background as a teacher. Um, and I don't, and I don't say this out of like um, out of ego or trying to pat myself no. on the back. I'm actually kind of like odd that somehow I managed to continue having a job as long as I've had one, <laughs> because I don't know how that's possible. Um, because I because I was an adjunct for I was an adjunct for I think close to eleven years, 
And I taught at one point I was teaching nine courses at four different institutions. Right. I've taught that. that was amazing. <laughs> I've taught writing courses. I've taught um, film courses. I've taught digital studies courses. I've taught one one courses. I've taught community college students. And I'll tell you the reason why this is it's not because it's not because that's what I think people should do. I happen to have a problem, which is I'm an insomniac yes. and I love, I love my job. Yes. <laughs> and what it means is that I've throughout my life and I'm having to come to grips with this because now that I have a two and a half year old daughter, I'm trying to have to figure out like, where do I put my priorities? Where do right. I put my time? Where do I put my energy when I can't sleep? Where do I put that love that I generate at 2.30 a.m.? She's right. sleeping but there's still some way to funnel it towards her and not towards other mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. um, but the gist is because of this problem I have, when people ask me, hey, do you want to teach X? I said, yeah. yes. That's how I ended up with nine classes in a, in a single term. Because when people said, do you want this group of students to get to work with, to talk about this stuff? I said, holy shit, excuse my language. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, and I, I actually remember... You, you must have wrote a blog post or something about that because I ran across that and I thought, Jesse beat me because my first semester teaching undergraduate here in Mexico, I was teaching four classes. It was all in math and it was all classes that I hadn't taught before. Can you grab that, buddy? Andy, that phone, can you grab it, bud? I silenced my other phone, but this phone rings. Um, so, no, can you grab it? Thank you, buddy. <laughs> totally <distracted laughs> can this please, can this please all stay in the episode? Yeah, I, I might actually my, do that. It's my so favorite I was teaching, part. <laughs> I was teaching, yeah, kids interrupting podcasting. Mm -hmm. um, I was teaching that first semester. I was teaching four math courses. Some of it stuff I didn't actually take as an undergraduate. And then um, the director of the department left and the only full-time professor at that time, we were still really small, left. And I took over four classes. So I was teaching eight distinct courses in my first semester undergraduate. And wow. it, it was just intense. But then I read that Jesse did nine. So I thought, yeah, you <laughs> but, but I totally hear you because I, I love either teaching something different or um, or inventing something different. Yeah. I, I can't stand still. Yeah. And well, it's crazy. I, I think it affects me negatively. And sometimes students anticipating that this guy's not really that prepared. <laughs> but um, I, I was going to ask you, do you think having all those different experiences teaching different courses makes each of those a better course because you've got those different experiences? I mean, I think that the one thing is that I've learned over many years to be extraordinarily flexible, extraordinarily flexible, um, extraordinarily responsive, because I could never anticipate who I was going to be working with at any given moment. And if I tried to, I would incredibly surprise at the, at the specific kinds of brilliance that a different group of students might um, show that I hadn't seen before. And so what happened is that I kept students doing things that I couldn't have possibly anticipated right. because I had such different groups of students. The other thing I think I learned is that when you, when I was teaching nine classes and it, it, like, I, you know, I say that, I say it as though it was just one time. <laughs> it was not just one time. Mm -hmm. I actually, I hit a sweet spot with nine classes. <laughs> the right rhythm. And I did it about, and I did it about three semesters in a row. And 
when I, and I, I have not, I, I do not intend to go back no. to that. And I'm not no. saying that that's a good number. No. It isn't. I'm, it's the wrong. I'm number. no longer 20 um, something. Yeah. And it's the wrong number because the kind of precarity of my labor and the way that I was being treated as a worker was irresponsible for, for those institutions. And just because I could do it doesn't mean it was all right for, to be asked to do it. But the one thing I would say, is that it, teaching that many classes was forced to learn some different approaches to how I dealt with students. I was forced to learn ways to streamline and not streamline because I wanted to save time. It was much more to streamline because I wanted to reach as many of those students as I could. And what I learned how to do was do a sort of uh, one to many. I realized that teaching, um, sure, there is something called mentoring, which is all about one. And that's absolutely crucial work that we do in education. But one to many skill that I think people need to learn. It's a it's mm -hmm. a skill about not just teaching to avoid, but actually making a connection with a large group of people and making it quickly. And there's lots of fields where people have to do this. If you think about live theater, for example, someone has to mm -hmm. go in and form a relationship with an audience of hundreds, hundreds of people in two hours. And they have to form right. a relationship that's so deep that, that those audiences connect on a visceral level to that person and what they're speaking on stage. And so in some ways, that it's not that teachers are equivalent to being on stage like a theatrical performance, but it's that, that same sort of figuring out how do we do the work. Nope, just pick up there a bit. Okay. Yeah, no worries. I, I paused. You're going to interrupt too, buddy? All right. <laughs> the second, the youngest just came in. He's checking if I'm on the computer still. Um, so I remember, was it you, Jesse, that talked about that all teachers could or should take an acting class about, yeah. is that, is that something people should think about? If not, like actually do, but. I did say that. I did say that. And I also said that, um, I think that all, not all teachers, but I said that me at least that I really want to go to clown school. And I think because. <laughs> Clown school scares me more than anything, but I also am absolutely fascinated by the idea of clown school for teachers. Um, and it isn't because teachers are actors. It isn't because teachers are clowns. It because, it's because there's some fundamental skills that I think that I learned as an actor. So I was an actor from age, uh, from first grade until 12th grade. Um, I went to acting okay. camp as a kid and I did not do any acting after 12th grade. But I think that I learned some things by doing that for so long. Oh, for and sure. I, I learned how to control my voice. I learned how to project my voice. I, and I learned how to essentially share who I am with my voice, to modulate it, to use different octaves. Right. To, um, I also learned how to connect with people in that one-to-many way, like to be able to look out at a crowd of people and feel their energy and feed off their energy and right. respond to energy. I think these are all things that as a teacher are super extraordinarily important. And I think um, we pick them up a lot just naturally yeah, as yeah, well, Jesse. We pick up a, yeah. Absolutely. We pick them up on our, so it isn't about, it isn't about teaching being about entertaining students. Sure. I actually yeah. think we should be a little bit entertaining. I think that's useful, but that's mm -hmm. not, but that's not really what the bread and butter of our work is. What the bread and butter of our work is making a connection. 
And I think that that's what I learned how to do as uh, in, on a stage. I learned how to make a connection. Um, and it is especially important for me as someone who has been an introvert for most of my life to learn how to do that with people that I had never met before. Right, right. And I think um, I, I talked with Chris Gilliard last week, early last week, and, and I was letting him know that I'm going to teach my first time online. Um, Mm. in the academic setting as opposed to just doing i do a lot virtually connecting and, and we've connected through that way but i'm i'm just scared of how do i'm good at making connection with the students in my classroom and i don't have that many students i have maybe you know 80 100 yeah. students per semester that I, and i can do that one-to-one -one thing um i'm i'm a little bit frightened how to make that connection yeah. through through that screen not yeah. at that I think screen, that, but through that scheme. Yeah. I think that the, I mean, and this is what I think is at the heart of open pedagogy is that when you talk about one to many, it, there's something very specific that's happening. So it could be, you could imagine one to many, one person communicating something to 30 people. That's a sort of megaphone. Right. But that's not what happens in a theatrical performance. It's not what happens in a good class. What instead happens is you have one to many, even when it's a lecture standing up at the front, you have that lecturer presenting, and then you have the hum of that room. You have mm -hmm. one person leaning over to the person next to them and whispering in their ear. You mm -hmm. have someone else elsewhere passing, passing notes to the person right. next to them. You have another student who's on Facebook and live Facebooking the what they're getting out of the lecture. Sure. And so what you realize is that one to many means not only the one person to the many, but what is happening between those people. And there's so many connections and they're the visible. Students. Exactly. And so essentially that's the key to online learning. It's not about you as the communicating to 30 students online. It's about how do you create the community and foster the environment where those 30 people are talking to each other. And it's the hardest part and the most important part. Just a second. Third child. Alex, I can edit this one up. Alex, what's up? <laughs> awesome. What's the Wi-Fi password? <laughs> you had all of my children come in. It's important Perfect. stuff. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, she's got a visitor, and they're working on things. Um, I lost my train of thought, Jesse. Uh, I was talking about uh, one to many, many and the making the students connect. So, yeah, that's and I remember talking with Chris because he said you, after 15 years he's still a failure at giving online learning, and and that makes me feel better and more confident. But we were discussing how when we're walking around a classroom, he was discussing the computer lab and and getting down beside a student and and making a connection and talking about some of their work. But you're noticing behind you something's going on. You're deciding how you're going to move around the classroom and go. To each of the students yeah. and um i'm just trying to grok how to do that when i'm because yeah. i'm going to be doing like, like connections a couple hours a week but also i think probably more important is the connections to my students outside of that lecture hour or two yeah well so sean talks about the idea of the talking uh, talking uh, connecting through a screen and rather than talking to a screen Right. And I think also a piece is realizing that um, that human beings and and physical interaction and face to face interaction, even audio interaction is extraordinarily high resolution. Right. So when you're talking about all of that hum behind you that you're that you're 
taking in, mm -hmm. even as you're talking to one specific student. What we have to do is in our online classes, we have to figure out ways to make them that high resolution. The problem of the learning management system or the problem of most of the digital tools is they try and simplify our interaction and simplify people and simplify the sort of transactional relationship that we have to a point of absurdity, to a point right. of losing that high resolution. I want to see the pores in your skin. Why right. can't I see the pores in your skin in an online classroom inside of in a learning management? There they are. Um, right. And the thing is that I say that I say that somewhat jokingly, but also like that's how we connect with people. We right. see them and we look at them and we notice little details that we don't think are important, but they end up being the thing that makes it's, you have texture. Well, the LMS tends to filter out all the noise to just have the signal, but a lot of that noise is really important. And I think yeah. that's something I mentioned with Sean when um, we're talking about the classic uh, uh, interpretation of flip learning just being about the videos and, and I know that's not true and I say that it's not true but a lot of times people say one of the advantages to making videos is you can you can really condense it down because you're not you're removing all of that banter that you have in class and you can just focus the content down into a five-minute chunk but and then when I was talking with Sean I said but that's losing all the character and losing all of the extra communication that happens by by filtering all that yeah. out and I think that's so important and it reminds me of when I met you in Virginia yeah. and, and, I mean, and you mentioned to me that after you sat beside me at a session, you were more comfortable speaking with me because you had that shared experience in a room with me and it wasn't us talking to each other. It was us yeah. riffing off what was going on in the session. And I think yeah. that's really important too. And I couldn't, I couldn't actually smell you. At least I can't remember smelling you. It's one of those high resolution things where there are so many senses involved, smell, sight, touch. And I don't <laughs> even remember if our shoulders brushed up against one another. But uh, the point is that all of those things mm -hmm. are our experience of each other as human beings. Sure. And they're all important. And so online, we have to find ways to engage people in multi-sensory interactions with one another. And I don't think this is like scratch and sniff online learning. No. We can't go hokey. We have to recognize what the medium is capable of doing and then figure out ways, figure out ways to do it. And, and even um, helping our students do that, because I, I noticed I'm in this course right now with Howard Rheingold, and there's a bunch of other people we know um, in, the, in the course. Ooh, is it my amplifiers? Yes, it's great. Yeah. It's wonderful. Aww. It's my first experience with this. And oh, Howard. And it's the last time he's going to teach it, or he has said, oh, I yeah. love Howard. Oh, I'm, I, I Howard jumped all my, over it. He is one of my favorite. Howard Rheingold, and I'm <laughs> going to put this on record, is one of my favorite human beings on this planet. He just yes. is. And he he's is. one of the most important, like he's one of five most important yes. influences on the work that I do. Yes. And say hello to Howard for me. Oh, and I will. Tell, tell, him I, tell him I love and appreciate it. And him. he's so gracious. And and yeah, I had to jump. When when I saw that he was given this course, I just, I didn't care if I was paying for it, but luckily I got my institution to pay for it, which was nice. Um, but I noticed um, there's a few people that we know through Virtually Connecting and 
I've developed the skill, and it's also because I've been working online in software development stuff for 20-something years, to be able to multitask. If we're having a conversation, I'm taking notes in the side chat, I'm searching on another browser window and doing all of these tasks at the same time. And other people that are in the course said, I can't do that. I, I can only listen to what's going on in the screen and see what's going on in the screen. And I can't do all this multitasking. And I'm wondering... And then we had the conversation just the other day where someone said, well, that seems chaotic and you're not contributing to the learning by having all these different things happening at the same time. And I don't think I agree. I'm not entirely sure. We're yeah. bantering it around. But um, I'm wondering how how to get that to my students of how to yeah. do this kind of communicating via multiple channels because a lot of them well, have never done this. So it's interesting because I wanna, I'm going to bring in some film theory. Okay. Uh, I did teach my favorite things to teach. And film is probably the area that, you know, if I had to say what content area other than pedagogy is my, is my expertise, it would be film. Um, film theory. Uh, th there's a, there are different film theories of film editing. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into this. But we tend to think that the eye sees by just kind of scanning and panning. But it isn't how the mm -hmm. eye actually sees. In fact, the eye sees a little bit more like classical film editing. The eye actually cuts. If you think about what your eye is doing at a given moment, you're actually darting around the space. You're not just scanning and panning. You're darting around a space, looking at small details, then panning out and looking at the hole, and then cutting to looking at the doorknob, and then I'm looking at your nose, and then I'm looking at the lights in my room, and then I notice you still have that weird headset on. And like, so my eye is actually bouncing around and actually cutting up the frame. And so, and I would never in a million years describe that as multitasking. I'm not multitasking. No. I'm just taking in the world the way that human vision takes in the world. Mm -hmm. And yet, somehow, when we think about windows on a computer screen, we imagine that suddenly, as human beings, we should be hyper-focused on only a single window and not actually paying attention to what's around that window. And that so right. the idea of having 16 tabs open and bouncing between them and looking at the top and then looking at the left and looking at the right, it's much more the way that human vision works in the mm -hmm. world. If I'm walking towards a door and I'm going to open that door, my eye isn't trained on the doorknob the entire time. My eye is bouncing around, checking my feet to make sure my feet are going to make the next step, looking at the room, noticing I didn't turn the light off, noticing the bed isn't made then seeing the doorknob, then looking at my hand, then reaching, then turning. And so essentially the idea that we're not constantly multitasking as humans right. is just, it's just bizarre. Or that we should have this, the ideal of being hyper-focused Focus. only on a single thing. It, it's just not the way that things work. So the right. idea that suddenly the internet is dramatically changing how we interact, I, I, think, I think to some degree it is but also to a major degree, it isn't. Well, in many ways, it, at least early computing limited us so much that we lost a lot of this kind of periphery work around what's a natural communication. So I think, I think in some ways we've been trained to focus on a single window, and especially when we didn't have multi-window operating systems. Yeah. Some theory. I have to ask Howard about that. He'll have yeah. lots to say about that for sure. Yeah. And that also, it's not just trained, but idealized. We've idealized this idea that we should have this 
hyper focus that I don't think ever existed for anyone. Or even in the classroom. Even in a classroom. Yeah. You're not paying attention to what I'm saying when I'm up at the front yeah. of the saying things. And that's Absolutely not. not. Like, I mean, the thing is that looking out the window, gazing out the window and pontificating, mm -hmm. that's, that's a, it's not, that isn't distraction. That's that helps actual, me focus sometimes. That's actually learning and focus for many people. And really for almost all people at some moment, that's where their brain needs to go. And so if you think about what is the equivalent of your eyes wandering and gazing out the window, what's the equivalent of that online? And why wouldn't we valorize that kind of action instead of demeaning students or imagining that, 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 that that's a horrible, a horrible thing? Wonderful. That, that helps. That definitely helps my, my way of thinking of how to pick up signals from my students when I'm going to be teaching online. I'm, I'm just fascinated. I, I'm, I'm super excited about doing it, but I'm horrified. So it, yeah. it should be a fun experience in October. I'll tell you. I'll tell you here, let me tell you, here, here's the thing. We can be in this together. All right. Because I have taught online since 2007. However, I haven't taught a fully online four credit course since 2012. So I taught fully online from 2007 to 2012, right. undergraduate four credit courses. I had taught some hybrid classes before that. But then most of my experience from 2012 on has been non-traditional MOOC-like experiments, mm -hmm. open education experiments. I haven't just, I, my, my uh, undergraduate teaching has been pretty traditional face-to-face -face courses mm -hmm. or hybrid courses where the bulk of it was face-to-face. -face. And I'm potentially, uh, it hasn't been totally confirmed, but I'm potentially teaching some fully online courses to undergraduates in the fall. Wonderful. We'll and, this. and I'm actually terrified too. I'm terrified too because I, I forget who I am as an online teacher mm -hmm. and teaching for credit undergraduate courses is different than teaching open online oh, experiment, weird things. Um, my the expectations are different. Yeah. And so I'm actually trying to figure out who am I going to be now as an online, as an online, as a more traditional online teacher? Interesting. Interesting. No, this is, this has been lovely. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to take too much of your time, Jesse. And um, what, so you're going to teach online again. That's new. What else is going to be new for the rest of this year for Jesse Stumble? Oh gosh. I hope that this isn't promising something that isn't actually going to happen, <laughs> but I feel like, promising it to the internet and promising it to you who wow. can like check check me on this and i haven't okay. really said this to much of anyone but i have um outline for a book nice. and i look at that outline for the book regularly and i take notes for the outline i collect i've been collecting some reading but i haven't written a single word yet okay and so i'm at this weird precipice where i'm about to start writing and I hope it's going to be soon. And so um, anyone who wants to sit in a virtual coffee shop with me and glare at me while I not write, um, <laughs> that's where I'm at right now. Awesome. <laughs> but, I, but I'm hoping that by next week. <laughs> when, you, when you need someone to call you and distract you from this not writing, just let me know. I, I did that for L Laura yeah. Gogia this morning. So <laughs> I kept her from oh, writing. <laughs> it was fun. Good distraction. Wow. Are you going to let us know what it's about or, or um, we'll, we'll hold that? I'm not going to let you know what it's about, but okay. I am going to let you know that the decision I made is that it needs to be about a lot of things mm -hmm. because I can't really do 
I, I didn't, I, I've read so many amazing books that feel like they have a really clear through line and that the way that they make their argument is gosh, inspiring. So an example would be Joshua Eiler's How Humans Learn. Yeah. The argument is so lovely and so wonderful the way that it travels across that book. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, I wish I could write that book, but I'm not Josh. I'm a different writer. And right. I realized I, that's not the book I can, what I really can write is something that's a much more motley assemblage. And so the person, the person, the book, recent book that I'm inspired by, and I'm not going to write a book that that's anything like that because it's just a whole different book. Um, but the book thick by Tressie McMillan Cottom, it, yeah. It is just amazing. It's an amazing book. And I certainly can't write that book because my book is going in a completely different direction. But I, what I love about this book is the way that it takes these different subjects and sets them alongside of one another in a way that when you're reading her book, you are just thrown. You're thrown from one direction to another, but you're always on the same path. Um, so I've been inspired by both of those books, obviously. And so I'm trying to figure out, I'm at this moment where I'm trying to figure out who I am. And th those are the folks who are inspiring me. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to it. And I, I need to read both of those books. I've actually got, um, Josh's books in my Kindle, um, waiting and, uh, and, and I haven't bought the other one, Tressie. Soon, soon. I think, didn't she give a talk? Was it for a DPL a couple she years did. back? She was one of the yeah, she was one of the keynotes at DPL. Um, I think two. I want to say two years. Seventeen, I think, because that's the yep, one where my ago. students um, actually. I had them watching it live, and mm -hmm. they got really excited about it. And um, uh, one of my students, uh, Cindy, was really excited about about Sean's keynote. So um, yeah, yeah, it was it was a fun time then. So good, good. Where should people find more about Jesse online? And uh, what? How do you want um, to sign off here? You know, I think that the best place, there's, I, I have a website, our book has a website, urgencyofteachers.com. But I would say that I, like, I love it when people reach out to me on Twitter at Jessica okay. and just say hello um, and try and engage with me there. My, like, the bandwidth has gotten more and more over the years, but the thing is I still try and keep my ear to the ground on Twitter and try and meet people there because I make so many connections there and love so many of the people. I mean, I obviously... I'm certain you know that the reason I know you exist exactly. is because of Twitter. And I knew you existed before I met you in person. And that's really super useful to me to sort of feel the hum of the field that we're in. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where I go to feel that hum. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you again for this, Jesse. This has been wonderful. Um, so many different paths came back through this. Um, and remembering sitting beside you at that session in open ed in, uh, what was it, 2016? Uh, brings back some great memories. Yep, indeed. Thank you, and uh, give Hazel a hug. And uh, thank you, huge, huge hugs. All right, thank you so much, Jesse, and have an awesome rest of the evening. Thanks, you too. Cheers. The Flip Learning Network is the original online hub of the Flip Learning community. We are a not-for-profit organization whose mission includes providing access to a wealth of tools, resources, and professional development opportunities. We hope to help educators build on the possibilities inherent in flip learning, and to explore evolving student-centered instructional practices. We invite educators everywhere to explore the resources available at fliplearning.org and to contribute to the discussion through comments, questions, and by submitting your own posts. 
Indeed, the site is built on the contributions from flipped educators like yourself who write blog posts. We also encourage you to join us on Slack where we have an ongoing dialogue. More information on the site about that. You can help support the FLN by making your purchases through our Amazon.com affiliate link at fliplearning.org Amazon, or you can support us directly on a monthly basis as a patron at Patreon. The short link for that is fliplearning.org slash Patreon. Thank you.